At one o'clock in the afternoon the following Monday, I show up for the first day of Spanish C Intermediate at Sever Hall. Maria Ramirez Lopez explains that we will soon be divided into sections of no more than 15 students, so that we'll all have plenty of chances to speak. She speaks only in Spanish, which I partially understand. But looking around, it seems that most of the students understand her perfectly, and some are already speaking back in impressive Spanish. While she passes around our first homework, I wonder, just how far over my head am I? Back in 2015, during the snowiest winter on record in Boston, I found myself at Harvard for a fellowship year I would devote to studying bilingualism in America. I thought I'd just be observing a language class as part of my research for my book, America's Bilingual Century. Instead, I became the oldest student enrolled in Harvard's Intermediate Spanish class for undergraduates. Would I end up like the snow-covered grass around the campus, being buried? Welcome to episode 51 of the America the Bilingual podcast. I'm Steve Levine. If you've caught our recent episodes, you know that we've been sharing some chapters from the audiobook of America's Bilingual Century, read by Sean Pratt, the award-winning audiobook narrator. So here's Sean to read for you what I experienced as an accidental Spanish language student at Harvard. Chapter 27. What they don't teach you in Harvard's Spanish class. I want to share with you my own experience in a 21st century language class. While I was researching this book, I found myself somewhat unwittingly, taking an intermediate Spanish class at Harvard. I learned more than I bargained for. It is January 2015, just before the arrival of blizzards that will set records in Boston and close the campus for an unprecedented three days. I meet Adriana Gutierrez, senior preceptor in Romance Languages and Literatures, in her cozy office on the fourth floor of Boylston Hall an unremarkable stone and metal structure that hides behind the monumental Widener Library on Harvard Yard. I drape my coat over one of her chairs and sit where she had gestured. I had come to try to learn more about how Harvard teaches languages to its students. Adriana is Mexican-American. She asks me where I am with my Spanish. Intermediate, I offer. I think she might then begin speaking in Spanish, but... She spares me and continues in English. She explains the communicative or post-communicative teaching method they use at Harvard today. Students do study grammar, but not more than half of any class is devoted to it. Instead, most of the class is conversation. Students talk about stories and poems they have read, or movies they've watched outside of class. The emphasis is on listening and speaking, while at the same time, learning about Latino culture as it is expressed in many countries. And it's more than just language skills Harvard cares about, she says. Our goal is to help reduce stereotyping during the process of learning about the language and the different countries and cultures that speak Spanish, and help create transcultural and translingual students, Adriana explains. She adds, 
But if you really want to understand how we do it, you should take a class yourself. Her office suddenly feels hot. The thought of taking a Spanish class with Harvard undergraduates makes my heart skip a beat. But listening to Adriana, I realize she is right. Besides, my Spanish could use the help. I haven't taken a Spanish class since sixth grade with senior masters and Hola, Pepito. ¿Cómo estás? At one o'clock in the afternoon the following Monday, I show up for the first day of Spanish C Intermediate at Sever Hall. Climbing two flights of the wide central staircase, I enter room 310 ten minutes early, which is a good thing, since soon more than fifty students file in, too many for the small room, and so they line up along the walls when our teacher begins. As at most American universities today, Spanish is the most popular language at Harvard. Maria Ramirez Lopez apologizes for the crowding and explains that we will soon be divided into sections of no more than 15 students so that we'll all have plenty of chances to speak. She speaks only in Spanish, which I partially understand. But looking around, it seems that most of the students understand her perfectly and some are already speaking back in impressive Spanish. While she passes around our first homework, I wonder, just how far over my head am I? Fortunately, classes are canceled the next day because of snow, which gives me more time to plot a survival plan. On Wednesday, I trudge through snowdrifts to the same classroom and find that Maria was true to her word about reducing class size. She and I are the only two people in class. When the bells begin to peal at nearby Memorial Church, signaling 1 p.m., students start to arrive. By ten minutes after the hour, there are twelve students, freshmen and sophomores mostly, and one old guy, who would be me. Maria starts conversations and works her way around the semicircle of chairs, making sure everyone participates, including me. She also breaks us into groups of three or four for a few minutes to practice among ourselves. I appreciate that the students don't seem to treat me any differently, even though I'm old enough to be their granduncle. Yet when class ends at two o'clock, I realize that if this were a Survivor episode, I would be voted off the island. I am definitely the weakest at understanding and speaking, and I'm not even sure I should try to participate. The undergrads are taking this for a grade, after all, which many need to get into graduate schools of one type or another. I am an interloper. So I go to office hours that first week to ask Maria if I should try to participate in class or just sit back and observe. Of course you must participate, she tells me in Spanish. There is no other way for you to learn. After our first week, I make a list of how things stack up. My classmates' advantages. 1. They are smarter than me. 2. They take tests really well. 3. They have had more Spanish, including grammar, and quite recently. 4. They can hear perfectly well, whereas my hearing is starting to go. 5. They are highly motivated to get good grades. 6. They seem to relish the mental struggle. And 7. They are all very nice. My advantages. 1. I show up on time. And now I have a clear idea of what's in store. Classes four days a week, 
four hour-long written exams, four two-page papers, first and second drafts, a presentation on Español en la calle, Spanish in the street, which requires me to take photos or videos of Spanish in the streets, and the sour cream on top of this educational burrito, a ten-minute oral presentation with a partner. Clearly, I will need all the help I can get to not make a complete idiot of myself. I decide to attend all the office hours I can. It turns out undergraduates these days apparently don't like office hours very much, preferring to engage virtually, so it's not hard to see Maria every week. I attend the extra tutoring sessions the language department offers once a week for 30 minutes. I go to Mesa Redondo, or Roundtable, dinners in the freshman dining hall. Once a week, an instructor dines with students who want to practice Mandarin, Italian, German, Spanish, and other languages. As at some other colleges, all the freshmen at Harvard eat together. On a typical evening at Mesa Redondo, there are one Chinese-American student whose Spanish is actually even worse than mine, although she is fluent in Mandarin, an enthusiastic native speaker from Argentina, whom our instructor happily chats with, a nerdy fellow who rattles off Spanish like a champ, but I can tell speed rather than accuracy is his thing. And me, the gray-haired guy, struggling to hear in this monumental hall, alive with jovial feasting. I take every opportunity Harvard offers its language students, but I know that won't be enough, so I hire a private language tutor, too. Her name is Luz Zuluaga, from Colombia, whom we met in Chapter 3. I meet with her once or twice a week for her help with my grammar and conversation, but not to correct my papers, which would be cheating, what's now referred to as academic dishonesty. Our instructor wants to see our writing raw, so she can discern our progress. As the date for our first exam looms, I'm nervous. It has been decades since I took a college test. Maria is nice enough to tell us exactly what will be on the test, but that doesn't help much, since I could have used another month to study her list of topics. When we show up at 310 Sever on test day, the chairs have been rearranged from their usual semicircle into tight horizontal rows, I guess to make it harder to look over someone's shoulder. We hand Maria our two-pound textbooks so she can check off that we have done all our grammar assignments. Then she hands us two pages, stapled together, with questions on both sides. We sit down and spend the hour hunched over our exams. Some of the questions are sentence completion, but the hard questions are the essays about the articles and poems we've read. It's all in Spanish, of course. I set about my test in a mild panic. After about 40 minutes, some of my classmates are already turning in their papers, but I have braced myself for that. I am determined to work until Maria pulls my test from under my pen. When she finally says time's up, I am relieved that there are a few other students still sitting there with me. How did I do? I have to wait a few days to get my test back, but the truth is, I don't know. I guessed about some of my answers, but at least I finished. The university has a language lab, but we don't use it. I ask Adriana Gutierrez why not. 
Students do go to the language lab in order to watch the movies we require in our courses, and they also go if they need technical support with their projects, podcast, and video editing. But there is really no need to go to the language lab to do oral drills anymore, which is what students used to do before. We know now that grammar drills and repetition do not help language acquisition. We prefer to engage in all four skills face to face in the classroom. The four skills are reading, writing, listening, and speaking. Back in 310 Sever, every day we have homework not only in our textbook, but on separate sheets as well. One day as class starts, I can't find mine. I desperately rummage through my bag twice, but no luck. I fall back to the basics. Se lo come yo mi perro. My dog ate it. Besides the volume of work, several other things impressed me about the course. First, true to what many of the language teachers I had interviewed said, Maria almost never corrects what any of us says. I learned later this is by design. Maria and the other instructors have learned that there is more to be gained by allowing students to speak imperfectly than by correcting them, which can have a chilling effect. By allowing us to babble on, never making fun of us or correcting us, she creates an atmosphere in which we are all eager to speak. The emphasis is on conveying meaning rather than on accuracy. Or, as Maria later explains to me via email after class, students should be in a motivated, calm, and productive learning environment in which they will feel confident to take risks and to participate. I always let them know that making mistakes is a natural step of learning a second language, and that I am not there to judge them, but to guide them through the learning process. I encourage them to participate without distressing about making mistakes. She does, in fact, correct us, but in such a wonderfully stealthy way that we don't really know she's doing it. She'll rephrase what we, incorrectly, say, emphasizing the part that needs correcting. Sometimes I paraphrase what students said with a question or comment. In this way, they don't feel intimidated, and it doesn't break the flow of the conversation, she adds. And, not surprisingly, there's a reason why she breaks us up into small groups. I consider that interactive activities are necessary in order to give as much practice as possible. Working in pairs and small groups gives students the chance to develop communication skills. I design my classes to be very interactive so as to reinforce the new materials presented. As for grammar exercises, she leaves those for homework. I am also impressed by the readings for the course. We are assigned serious poetry and essays on meaty topics concerning Latin America, the political issues, the struggles of women and the poor, the perilous lives of immigrants. I learn about the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Rigoberto Menchu. She didn't learn Spanish until she was 20, and did so in order to be able to convey her story of coming of age as an indigenous woman in Guatemala pulling herself out of poverty, and helping her people do the same. The readings would have been heavy going in English. In Spanish, they are doubly challenging. Plus, we are expected to discuss and write about the reading. But there is also the sheer beauty of Latin American literature. We read poems by Jorge Luis Borges, Pablo Neruda, Luisa Valenzuela, Julio Cortazar, Nicolas Guyen, and Tino Villanueva. And while it is a struggle, 
I realize this is more than a Spanish class. It is a history and literature class, too. In the more advanced language classes on campus, students read literature, write about it, and discuss it. Even in this intermediate class, we are getting used to doing that. And it isn't all serious. Maria plays the song Me Gustas Tu, or It's You I Like, by Manu Chao, which has us all laughing. A few days later, Maria waits till the end of class to discreetly hand back our tests. I nervously open my two stapled sheets of paper to find... A B+. I take a photo of my grade and text it to my kids. They text back congratulations and smiley faces. Maybe I could survive this class, after all. I look at my paper again and notice that Maria has not used the customary red ink to convey my grade, but rather violet. Other tests I get back during the course are graded in blue ink. Later, I learn that this isn't any accident, either. Studies have shown that students think they've been evaluated more harshly when their work is covered in red ink compared with more neutral colors, Maria explains. I learn another important thing. Peer pressure works on me. When I have to participate in class, have to take tests, have to write papers, have to do presentations with a partner who needs a good grade, I feel a need to perform. In contrast, when I was managing my own language learning, as I was for the past five years, what I was missing most was accountability. Yes, I went through many audio programs and computer programs and apps and even had personal tutors, but still, when I was running the show, my pace was slow. Now, with this classroom setting, I am making the fastest progress I've ever made. It's hard, but it feels good. When it comes to physical exercise, I usually have enough discipline to do it myself. I don't need classes or an exercise boot camp. But when it comes to language learning, apparently I do need a kick in my butt by people I've made a commitment to. I need demanding coaches to keep me accountable. Many parts of the learning are delightful, fun, and fast, but other parts are a struggle, and you must embrace it. Permit the pain of searching for words, of not being able to express what you wish. For this is just when we learn the most, right? And how many things truly worthwhile come without a struggle? I'm not sure any technology, no matter how useful for language learning, can provide what a great coach or teacher can. Perhaps it's because we're in the habit of being accountable to people, not to software and books. The midpoint in our semester arrives, and a classmate asks if I will be his partner for the oral presentation. He has no idea how grateful I am. I thought Maria might have to assign someone to take me on as a charity case. Josh Robinson is a freshman with a ready smile and a haircut the Marines would be okay with. Over coffee, I ask him about his background. I went to six different high schools between Virginia, Arkansas, and Texas, he tells me. My parents divorced, and I lived with my aunt and uncle, both of whom were in the Army at the time. Well, I say, you must have done something right to get into Harvard. I guess Harvard felt sorry for me, says Josh. Plus, I did pretty well on the tests. Later, I learned that he, like most students here, had nearly perfect test scores. Josh tells me that his father is a truck driver and is 38 years old. 
His mother has never been on an airplane. Josh is half black and half white, but I look Dominican or Puerto Rican, which is why I feel so compelled to learn the language and the culture. So many assume that I'm of Latino descent. I figure I should, at the very least, be connected. He also tells me, with a soft smile, that he has a Spanish-speaking girlfriend, a fellow freshman. Josh is taking French at the same time, I learn, and is considering majoring in Romance languages and literature. He figures it might help his ultimate goal, which is to become a rapper. Mulling this as I sip my coffee, an idea pops into my head for our presentation. I say, why don't we do a radio interview where I play a disc jockey and you play a famous rapper? Josh likes the idea and says he can give the history of reggaeton in his responses, which should meet the Latino culture requirement. What is reggaeton? I ask. Josh is polite enough not to raise his eyebrows, but instead explains that its origins trace back to Jamaican dancehall music, especially to a guy named Shaba Ranks. Josh says, He'll send me a few links to get me started. We say goodbye, and I realize my education is about to take an unexpected turn. The date arrives when Josh and I have to meet with Maria during office hours and make our pitch that our radio skit should qualify as a report about Latin American culture. Our Spanish must have been pretty horrible because she twice makes us try other words. Finally, she says, But it's supposed to be about Latin American culture like poetry or art. Reggaeton is important music out of Latin America today. Important for my generation, says Josh. I nod and say something like, Yes, it's important for the young generation of today, as if I have any idea. Maria shrugs, but gives her assent. Josh and I do high fives in the hall. Then we sign up for one of the last time slots to buy ourselves some time. The date finally arrives for our oral presentation. To help our act, I ordered some Mexican t-shirts for us. Josh's is black with a giant label that reads, Hecho in México, made in Mexico. Mine is blue with one Spanglish word printed in white. Mexcellent! Josh and I have practiced and have our script written out on my computer, along with the music clips I am to play to illustrate Josh's story of reggaeton while on his own computer he clicks through his slides describing the music's history. I launch in in Spanish with, Yes, it's 12 midnight. I'm Doc and welcome, guys, to our program, The New Scream at 109.7, Tijuana, Mexico. Our classmates seem to be enjoying the show. I'm not sure about Maria, but I'm too busy trying to speak my lines and hit the right buttons on my computer. Josh is doing his repero thing with a natural flair. All of a sudden... I realize, to my horror, that I have jumped ahead and skipped a whole section of dialogue, but Josh rolls with it like a pro, and we finish on time, and to much applause from our classmates. I'm not sure what Maria thinks of it all. We'll have to wait till we get our grade to find out. As our course enters its final week, I'm feeling good about the progress I've made, earned from hard study in private and uncomfortable struggle in public. I can tell spirits are high in the class, too. The final exam comes, and once again the chairs are aligned in tight rows. I struggle more than usual, and am among the last students still working when our time is up. Later that final week, we finish up our Espanol en la Calle presentations. 
Mine isn't particularly wonderful, especially when two of my fellow students have to come up and help me with my computer. Maria, with her soft, friendly manner, encourages us all to continue our Spanish and move up to Spanish 30, the next language class in line. Later, home alone, I go online to check to see if my final grades are in. They are. I see that I got a B on my final exam and that my final grade is a B+. I'm delighted. But then I see that one last grade is still outstanding. Class participation. I send an email to Maria to ask when those will come in. She replies within minutes that she has just finished adding those grades and, continuing in Spanish, I hope you continue with Spanish. You've made much progress. Your final grade is an A-. I leap up from my chair and do a happy dance. Showing up on time got me over the hump after all. My experience at Harvard is one that's being played out with different scripts and in different classrooms throughout the country. The Modern Language Association reports that some 1.4 million college students are enrolled in a language class across more than 2,000 American colleges. That shows some serious scale. And if those students have a thirst to excel at a language, they will most likely find professors and departments at all of those colleges and universities who are more than able to quench it. We saw this in Victoria Duclos's experience at Florida Atlantic University. And we can see it in the unusual story of a late-entry college student of Italian heritage named Nick Staffa. Nick told me that he took Italian in high school because of his Italian heritage. After high school, I kept up with it a little bit on my own, but really nothing much, and, you know, life gets in the way, he said. Instead of going to college after high school, Nick devoted himself to his music, managing a music store, giving guitar lessons, and playing in his band. But, of course, there aren't many Bruce Springsteens. I decided that I needed to go back to school and get a degree in something because I just kind of felt unfulfilled. So I decided to go back to a local community college here on Long Island. He enrolled at Suffolk County Community College, which had a language requirement. The school told Nick it had been too many years since his high school Italian. He wouldn't get any credit for that. He had to start over. I asked them what they had, and they were very excited to tell me they were offering Chinese for the first time, and they didn't really have many people signed up for the course. They were trying to kind of rope people in. I thought it was interesting, so I gave it a shot. It was a very basic course, but Nick liked it and got an A for two semesters. I wanted to go for the four-year degree, so I decided to shift over to Stony Brook University on Long Island, he said. Stony Brook also had a language requirement. I figured to get my language sequence finished, I might as well continue with Chinese, Nick said. After all, I was good at it. He signed up for intermediate Chinese at Stony Brook and was in for a shock. I would come into class and I'd see a couple of classmates in the hallway and tell them, boy, that homework last night was real killer. It took me a couple hours to finish. And they're kind of scribbling it in and finishing it in five minutes before class in the hallway. So what happened? I asked. I bombed out, he said, laughing. It was like going from the minor leagues to the majors. One important difference 
was that almost all of his fellow students were native Chinese kids who, Nick said, were taking the course to boost their GPAs. I felt it was kind of unfair, Nick admitted, but I don't give up very easily. Nick decided to tell his professor, Agnes Ha, that he was struggling. Agnes is a professor of applied linguistics and Asian studies at Stony Brook. Not a whole lot of students transfer from community college and take the courses that I teach, Agnes told me. She said Nick's Chinese wasn't good enough to enroll in her class, but he just struck me as a most unusual student who's most curious and passionate about languages and cultures in general. So Agnes created an independent study course for Nick and arranged for a private tutor, one of the school's graduate students. Nick met with his tutor several times a week for a year. His goal, he said, was to catch up so I could take the class the following fall. The next fall, Nick signed up again for the same class he had bombed out of. He continued to work hard, and by the end of the semester, he'd earned an A. After that, the fire was lit, and I was really hot to continue, Nick told me, so I took the next course. By the time he graduated, Nick was an Asian American Studies undergrad with the highest standings. Said Agnes, He was definitely a star student. In fact, at his commencement, he was the one who carried the banner representing our department. It was a pretty triumphant day, said Nick about his graduation, and he is deeply grateful to Agnes. She's just such a caring teacher. She saw the potential I had and knew it would probably change my life. So she stuck with me and really pushed me along. The language classes at Harvard are excellent, but they are not unique. The true strength of American higher education is not the handful of ivy-clad institutions we have, but rather the broad expanse of fine colleges and universities across our country where dedicated language teachers recognize committed students and help them achieve their goals. What they don't teach you in Harvard's Spanish class is grit. And when students have grit, as Victoria and Nick do, in America, they can excel. If you're enjoying these chapters of America's Bilingual Century, you can pick up a copy of the book through our website. Go to americathebilingual.com forward slash book and click on the links for the audio, print, or ebook version. In our next episode, Sean will be reading a chapter from part three of America's Bilingual Century. It's where you'll discover how Americans are becoming not ghostbusters, but mythbusters. When it comes to learning languages, I hope you'll join us. My thanks to the America the Bilingual Project team, including Caroline Dowdy, our audio and digital book maven, Fernando Hernandez and his production house Esto No Es Radio, who provides sound design and mixing, Mim Harrison, our editorial and brand director, Carlos Plaza, our creative director, and Carla Hernandez at Daruma Tech, who manages our website, americathebilingual.com. I invite you to follow America the Bilingual on Facebook, along with the Lead with Languages campaign run by our friends at ACTFUL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. Thanks for listening for America the Bilingual. This is Steve Levine.